Hey, hey, it's Kinsey Ray. Welcome to the Happier Days podcast. In this podcast, I discuss ideas, tools, and strategies to help you create strong habits and a winning mindset to overcome life's challenges and become the best version of yourself. When you love this episode, I kindly ask that you leave a five-star review and subscribe. It really helps my message find the people that need it. Please tag me on Instagram with your biggest takeaway. I love hearing from you. You can tag me on Instagram at KinseyRay.W. That's K-I-N-S-E-Y-R-A-Y dot W. In this episode, I have the honor of interviewing Rob Searstens. We have a powerful conversation around mental health. Please know that in this episode, we do discuss sensitive topics around suicide and self-harm. I know you're going to want to share this episode with any parents that might have kids that are struggling with self-harm or struggling with their mental health, as Rob provides such great insights of what to do if a loved one is struggling. More importantly, he shared how to create a safe space within your household of how to start this conversation, how to discuss emotions with your kids, and create an environment of communication within your family. I know I got some tremendous takeaways from Rob, and I know you will too. Awesome. Well, I am super excited today that I have a very special guest to introduce you guys to on the Happier Days podcast. I'm here with Rob Searstens, and he is a father, a speaker. He is an author of The Ego of the Warrior. He's an empowerment coach, and he's doing some phenomenal work with his warrior work method. And Rob, I'm really excited to have you here with it being Mental Health Awareness Month. I know that you have struggled with your mental health and it's brought you to some really low and scary points in your life. Just like me, I related a lot to your story in some ways. And it's always inspiring to me to see other people who have gone through struggles and see how they've been able to overcome to become the person that they are today. So I really Mm -hmm. love the work that you're doing. And I love that you're specifically speaking to men and the importance of talking about your emotions and really addressing those traumas to heal and overcome and move forward in life. So I would love to have you just tell a little bit of your story and who you are to kick this off, to let the listeners know who you are. Oh, thank you. I truly appreciate the opportunity to be here. You know, um, there's a lot that goes into my story. And I started off with, you know, being an abandoned baby and then growing up, being adopted and growing up in a really racist kind of culture um, that I had to deal with a lot of bullying, bullying and a lot of beatings. And so I adopted the belief system that I didn't belong, that I was a mistake, you know, and since I was shown a lot of hate, I adopted that as well and fell into the narrative of self-hate, which eventually led to self-harm, right? And it's something I struggled with well into my 30s about 35, 36, where I found another method, other methods and other modalities to help me move on and heal and to really step into my power and get on the other side of the healing where you, where I teach and I coach that that's where your superpowers are. And so that's kind of the gist of everything. But yeah, there's a lot more that goes into that. Yeah. Um, so I, I love what you 
loved the concept of, you know, my, my self-loathing, it, it led to self-harm. Um, that, mm-hmm. I feel like that was exactly what happened with me. Um, and I think it's so important to talk about self-harm and bring awareness to this, especially with Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, do you think other things lead to self-harm? Is it just that self-loathing or do you think there's other factors that play into it? Well, I, I, I believe there's a lot of forms of self-harm right? It's just not necessarily a physical harm that we do to ourselves. It can be abandonment. It can be self-abandonment by, you know, not feeding ourselves. It can be, you know, and using the excuse that we're too busy because we work too much. It can be not getting enough sleep. It could be, you know, another form of self-harm I adopted because I never got into addictions. I never got into drugs. But in other words, my addiction was the gym. And so that's how it I would beat myself up and punish myself for two, three hours a day, twice a day. Right. And that's something I felt I had control over. And it was actually the antithesis of what I was trying to do. And even though I felt my body look, look great, I was in the most physical and mental anguish I've ever suffered in my life. Right. And so it's really important to identify that there's so many different forms of self-harm rather than just maybe cutting or burning, or alcohol abuse, or drug abuse, there's there's a lot of different ways we can harm ourselves. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's such an, an important conversation to have. And I feel like some people also aren't ready for that conversation to look in right. the mirror and say, how am I actually harming myself and holding myself back with these behaviors? For me, sure. um, I'm very much so like you, my self-harm took a lot of different evolutions over the years. And one that, you know, followed me into my late 20s was like picking at my face and acne and and I think a lot of people do that habitually as a stress reliever and so I think it's such a powerful conversation to look at how you're coping with your emotions like what are you turning to to process the negative emotions that come up and is that serving you or are you disassociating or running away so I right think so important. right absolutely and it's a lot of times we just you know, at least for our generation and my generation, we weren't taught anything about mental health. We weren't taught anything about, you know, having an understanding of what our emotions are. We didn't have an understanding about what emotional trauma was or self-abandonment or being abandonment, you know, and growing up in dysfunctional households and how easily we can be traumatized as young souls by our parents or our caregivers, right? And so, when we're not trained or educated on those places, it's really, really easy to fall into those places of self-harm or Mm self-abandonment. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Um, And so with it, what do you think is like being a parent now, how do Mm -hmm. you, what do you think the solution is moving forward? Because I agree, I feel like this mental health awareness, it's a new conversation, get in touch with your emotions, let's see how we're navigating them. I feel like it's definitely a new new topic what do you think the solution is because i'm i'm all for awareness but i'm also very passionate about what's the solution like we can say okay self-harm's a problem mental health is a problem but like what are we going to do about it so for you being a dad I'm, i'm curious how are you navigating teaching your daughter these skills of understanding your emotion and what do you think that solution is moving forward yeah, for me, I have a beautiful daughter. She'll be 12 in September. And then I have four stepchildren. One's in college and one's um, 10 years old. 
And so I have a wide range. And the number one thing I committed to myself is creating a container of safety, mm. first and foremost, right? A lot of us didn't grow up with that opportunity. We were either, it, it was a household where we didn't discuss our emotions, or if we brought up our emotions, we got scolded, we got shamed, we got yelled at, we got abused. And those weren't ne all necessarily for me, but a lot of my clients and a lot of people I know. So everyone received a different way to harness and understand their emotions. So for me, number one is creating a safe container and helping my daughter understand that it's not only safe to talk about her emotions and my stepchildren to have group family meetings, check in where everyone's at, how they're feeling, have individual meetings. And so it's not only something that I open up, but it's also an expectation we've created for each other. Like, hey, let's talk about this. It's actually been more normalized than what a lot of us grew up in yeah. to, and even for, you know, my step boys, it's okay to cry. It's okay to show frustration. It's okay to show anger. You know, I have my two stepsons are great, amazing athletes and great boys and great kids, and they're fierce and athletic. And you can still be tough on the court or the football or rugby field and still know that there's a safe place for you to cry and to share your emotions when you're overwhelmed, you know. And so there's so many different layers that. I have been compiling with my partner that we need to create in order not to run through the same dysfunction that I know I did. Yeah. Right. And so trust is the number one thing, trust and safety within the household. I love that. I love the idea of individual meetings and group meetings. I have a mm -hmm. 11 month old right now. So, you know, the, the individual meeting, it's a lot of him yelling at me. It's not quite right, the, right. the communication I'm looking for. So I'm excited to learn about this and how I can implement these things, obviously, as he gets older. So um, out of curiosity, do you schedule those? Are they planned? Is it something your, your kids opt into? Like I need a meeting or is it like yeah. a weekly meet? How do you run that? Yeah, it's definitely just more of a check-in. It's, you know, we're, we're in tune with our children and we, we can see when something's wrong, right? It's just like, hey, let, let's talk about this. What do you need? You know, what's going on? And whether, you know, our children want to meet with both of us or just one of us, you know, we leave it up to them. Now, when there's, you know, disarray in the household and, you know, chores aren't getting done and, you know, some things are just going a little haywire, then we'll, you know, get a group meeting and it's not so we can shame them and verbally be, beat them up. It's like, Hey, what do we need to get, do to get realigned? Right. A lot of times I, we run in with, you know, as clients and parents, it's really easy to fall into this teenage stage where what finding out what your kids can do for you. And you know, that creates kind of a, a disconnect and they begin to feel marginalized. But when you're showing up with your children in a place of like, hey, how can I support you? How can I show up for you? And let them know this is actually a team group sport, right? Like, hey, we all show up in the household. We all support each other. We all take care of the responsibilities we need to do in order for our house to be better, you know, and more aligned with each other and the communications better. And it shifts everything. And that's one of, one of the number one things I, I implement with, you know, when I'm coaching couples is, you know, how are your family meetings going? How are your team meetings going? How are those expectations? Because it's so easy to start to build a lot of resentment within the household just from lack of communication. We're not communicating with each other. Things aren't getting done. People aren't showing up the way I want of these expectations that I 
I haven't spoken to them, but I need them to do. And then it creates a lot of disappointment and a lot of disarray within the home. And so if we can get to a place where we're constantly communicating, constantly showing up and showing support, it changes the whole energy within the home. Yeah, I, I love that. And I believe communication would solve 99% of our problems in our life. It's Absolutely. Something, it's something I've really struggled with in my life. So that actually leads me into, into my next question is I've struggled to communicate a majority of my life. And I think it's something mm -hmm. a lot of people struggle with. We're not taught how to communicate. And I think that was one of my biggest struggles as a teenager when I was going through my struggle with self-harm is I knew I wasn't okay. I knew I needed help. I knew there was a serious problem going on and I physically could not get the words to come out of my mouth. Like everything right. has been in my head. So I'm curious, how have you taught your kids to be able to communicate? Do they struggle with communicating? Do you think that's like an individual thing or like, have you done anything to teach, teach your kids how to communicate their emotions? You know, I started my healing self-help journey, you know, a little over seven years ago. And so my daughter was, you know, five or six when I started and, or younger than that, sorry, my math is not great. But once I started inheriting and embodying the tools I needed to learn, I started sharing those with her, yeah. right? And then I started sharing those with my partner and we started, you know, creating a, the co-creation of what we are wanting and needing within the home. So don't, don't get me wrong. The first couple meetings were a little weird and our older kids were like, what is this? What are we doing? Right. But then we normalized it. It was, and it, it wasn't something we did every week. It maybe started once or twice a week. And then it got down, I mean, once or twice a month. And then it just got into once a month. And now it's pretty much as a, as needed basis. But it's just really getting specific on what are your needs and what are your expectations from each other within the household. And once you start creating that and creating a habit of that, it becomes a lot more normal and expected. And you're not going to receive as much push pushback as you think you are, because what you're going to find is your kids, you know, most kids are really smart. They're sponges. They're going to actually see how it, how it serves them how it supports them, how it allows them to be seen and heard with their frustrations or their needs as well. Just creating that safety, you know, creates a lot of unity within the household. Oh, I think that's so powerful. I like the question of what do you expect from me? Right. Cause right. I even, especially as kids, right. I think this is true in relationships and then in a parent child relationship that we have some level of expectation from our parents, but they're not mind readers. Like they don't know what right. we're expecting from them. I, I tell my husband this all the time as we're communicating, like, tell me what you need, right? Like, I, I'm not a mind reader. If you need something right. from me, please tell me and I will do my best to grow and change and adapt and, and meet that expectation or tell you where I can meet you with that. So I think that's a really powerful, powerful question. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's imperative to do it with your partner as well. You know, me and my partner have weekly check-ins. We usually check in every Sunday. Hey, what's going on? Is there anything you need? Is there anything you're frustrated with? Like, how can I support you? You know, and then we talk about our schedule throughout the week. It's funny how, you know, a 15, 20 minute check-in can save so many spirals, fights and arguments throughout the week. Because especially with kiddos, when you have your own careers, there's so many things going on. And it just automatically as humans, we create these unspoken expectations on each other, how they need to show up and make our life better. But it's actually not really fair mm -hmm. because 
like you just said, we're not mind readers. And so we need to get to a place where, where we set time away and we communicate our, our needs and support and frustrations and we talk about it and we work it out. Yeah, I love that. I like that you guys have a designated once a week time frame. Do you have that scheduled in a calendar? Is it just you both know? Is it a certain time for you? How do you how do you do We've that? been doing it. We've been doing it for so long that it, when we get to Sunday or the end of the week or, you know, I travel back and forth between Denver a lot. It's, you know, when it's time for me to travel, travel again, it's just like, hey, let's check in where are we at. How are we doing? You know, and just go from there. It's pretty second nature for us now. That's awesome. How, how long have you been doing that practice together? Did you do it initially as you started your relationship or when, when did you no. um, we've probably been doing it for about three or four years now, you know, and it's, it's one of those things that you need to be intentional about because yeah, we're so busy. We're juggling five kids, a lot of sports, and it's really easy that it can slip away. And then you find yourself in an argument or if I, it's like, Oh, we didn't check in this week, did we? And it's so funny how it always brings it back to that, where it's just like, we can be accountable for when we mess up, right? As a unit. Yeah, I love that. Okay, weekly check-ins. Me and my husband, we do uh, a nightly gratitude practice, which is something similar, but I, I like mm -hmm. the check-in of what are your frustrations? How can I support right. you? I, I like some of these different questions. Yeah. Um, so I've been, I've gotten uh, quite a few questions over the years as I've openly discussed my struggle with self-harm from my different followers. And I would love to hear your take on a couple of these if you're open to it. Absolutely. Um, so since I have not navigated this yet, I'm definitely curious on, on your um, explanation. And it kind of, you, you kind of already touched on it as far as uh, talking to your kids about emotions and creating that safe space. But I've had someone ask me, as a parent who has struggled with self-harm, how do you explain your scars to your kids and start that conversation of like what happened in, in a healthy dialogue? Like, did you have any fear about bringing that up? Have you had that conversation yet? So I have not yet have that conversation with my daughter. Um, like I said, she's 11 and all my scars, I have scars all over my body, just from sports and being a crazy kid growing up. And 90% of my scars are covered up from my tattoos. Um, and that's not why I got my tattoos to cover them, but it just so happened. I think I have one on my arm that's showing and I have not had that conversation yet. It's what's interesting is she does know with the work that I do that I did have a very, very deep and dark battle with depression. She, and that I struggle with mental health because she's luckily been very involved of what I do. And, you know, when I have the opportunity to be on TV, she sees that where I talk about those things. It's not something I'm running away from. It's more of something that it's more about timing and making sure she's at the capacity to understand what's what has happened and why someone was, would do that, right? For right now, checking in with her intuitively, I don't feel she's at the place or the capacity to understand that yet, right? And she still doesn't, she still hasn't got to the place where I can share that I attempted to take my own life either, yeah. right? And it's something that I, it sounds kind of crazy, but I'm looking forward to sharing with her. Right. It's not something I'm hiding, not something I'm covering up. It's got to be at the right time and right space where I know she can receive it and understand like, hey, daddy's fine. And in fact, daddy's thriving and in a great place. And because of what he's gone through, he can do what he does now. Right. And so I, I feel like that conversation will come in the next year or so, though. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that's powerful. I think tuning in intuitively of like, when's the right mm -hmm. time? Because I'm with you. It's not something you just bring up <laughs> randomly. Right. It has to be the right time, the right place. Um, and I've, I've pondered on that a lot. Obviously, you know, my son's going to grow up one day and uh, my scars right. are hidden. They are very visible. And so... Um, I pondered a lot on how to navigate that and, and the conversation. So I, I will be curious for an update. I'd love to hear how that goes and yeah, absolutely. How, how you navigate that as that comes. Um, so another question that people ask a lot is what to do if they find out that their kid is struggling with self-harm? What, what do you suggest to people? Uh, I have my answer. I always give people, but I'm curious just from your take of what do you suggest if someone is struggling with a various form of self-harm? is don't make it about them. It's really easy to make situations as a parent, as a friend, that you make it about you, right? Like, how could you do this to me? What are you doing? That's so scary. Like, and it automatically puts someone in shame and in a place where they don't want to share what's actually going on, mm. right? And so it's more about asking questions from a place of understanding and compassion, right? And what I found is, there's a lot of people, and I know it sounds crazy that I use that terminology is what I found is, but there's a lot of people that don't understand depression, that don't understand darkness, right? That don't understand, like, you actually have the ability to think of taking your own life and to the point of self-harming, like, how could you do that? That would hurt so bad. And so if you don't understand, do your best to study up on it to research it, to find out and educate yourself of what is what is going on, because it's so easy to make it about you, mm -hmm. right? And it takes that other person's process away, because usually someone, at least from me, I was dying to be seen. I was dying to be heard. I was dying to belong. I was dying to feel like I wasn't a mistake and that I, 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 I belonged here on this earth. And because of so much rejection, I just felt like, okay, how could I punish myself, right? And so a lot is just asking questions and holding space and not necessarily looking for an answer or a verdict of how to make them better. Because when it comes to self-harm, it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable, mm -hmm. very uncomfortable because there's a lack of understanding for it. And so if you can just create, create a place of safety and a container for them to just speak and then ask, how can I support you? What it is you need, rather than you need to do this, you need to do this, I can't believe you would do that. It's not gonna help. It's actually gonna create a lot of resistance and a lot of pullback from someone, right? And so that's probably the best advice I can give. Yeah, and I, I think that's super powerful because I remember when when my mom found out that I was self-harming, you know, she was confused as most parents right. are they're shocked, they're confused, they don't understand, they don't know what it is. And right. creating that safe space of communication and just being open to ask questions to understand, I think a lot of kids that are struggling with self-harm, they don't even fully understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. At least right. that was for me. I didn't my mom said, What is this? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't, right. I don't know how I got here. I don't know why I did this. Like I didn't even fully understand it. So then to try and articulate it as a 15 year old who already struggled to communicate <laughs> her emotions and what was going on, right. it was really hard for me to communicate what was going on. And so I really appreciate that my parents did hold space for me and they were just 
They wanted to understand, they wanted to help and they didn't get mad. They didn't shame me and they were able to help me move forward and get the help that I needed. And so I think that is so powerful to not make it about you and what did I do wrong? Why are you doing this? And like berate them for what they're doing. Cause obviously I'm with you that self-harm is so misunderstood and people are quick to judge. You're an attention seeker and they say all sorts of nasty stuff. Right. And I, I don't think people realize that if someone is in that headspace of being to the point that they're hurting themselves, obviously there's a the fundamental problem. There's a real issue there. And the last thing that right. they berated and shamed and make be make make you feel like you're doing something wrong. Right. Right. And so it's just, like I said, if, if you can have someone, if you can be in the place of just understanding, even if you don't understand and just create safety and let them know that you're here and that you're just, you know, a listening box for whatever it is they need and ask them, allow them to dictate like what it is they need and how to support and how to find, you know, the help to answer the questions. Cause like you and me, when I was self-harming, there wasn't social media. I didn't see it from any movies. I didn't see it from TV. It's just something I started doing in the shower. Right. And it, I did it for two years before, you know, I just stopped. And one, I just remember when one of the, none of the times before it, it always felt like a release and like a punishment and like a deserving. And then one time when I was the last time I did it, I'm like, Oh, that really hurt. Mm. And then I stopped, which was super interesting. Never did it again. Yeah. So. Do you mind me asking, had anything shifted in your life when it got to the point of like, oh, this is no longer a release for me that, ow, that hurt and I don't want to do this anymore? Had you had something shifted in your growth or? It was right when I started playing football at the U and is when I started. All my friends had left on missions. And so I felt really alone. And, but I was also really, really excited. But and I was really excited not only to be fulfilling part of my dream, I was really excited to be surrounded by other Black people, right, by other Black men. To my surprise, I was quickly, quickly rejected because I wasn't from the inner city. I wasn't from, you know, Black neighborhoods. I was from, you know, a very predominantly white Salt Lake City, Utah, right? And I was Mormon at the time. And so I looked like an alien. I spoke the way I spoke. I acted the way I acted. I dressed the way I dressed. And so, you know, near my second year, sophomore year, I really started proving myself on the field and how I was doing. And then I started, you know, being received a little bit better. And I think that was the shift. Um, And guys started giving me the chance, even though I got made fun of a lot. I got called Carlton, all those things. the, The respect was starting to be made. And, but it was really hard for me. I think what initiated it was that feeling of so much rejection my entire life and putting the expectation that I was finally going to be received and felt like I belonged to only be fully, fully rejected. And that's what sent the spiral. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the shift after my sophomore year where respect and belonging started to make sense a little bit more, but I, I couldn't internalize what was going on back then. But through the work and the healing that I've done, that's how I've identified it. And that's how it makes sense to me now. Yeah, so. that, makes, that makes sense. So in the work that you've done, you, you I, I know that you help a lot of people with overcoming trauma and moving forward in life. And I believe like at, 
all of us will experience trauma at some point. If we haven't already, mm -hmm. it's coming for you. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Sure. But that's just sure. part of the experience. What would you say the first step in healing from trauma is? Whether it is trauma of self-harm that you did or, you know, unexpected circumstances, you've experienced both. You know, for for me, when I really started on this healing journey after my suicide attempt, I didn't necessarily have the money or the funds to be in therapy or anger management. Now, for the 15 years prior to that, when I was in corporate America, I was in therapy and I was in anger management. And I wasted a lot of money with therapists that couldn't empathize or understand um, just being in, you know, the, you know, just being in Salt Lake. Not necessarily any men could really empathize with what I was going going through, and it was usually sent home with a book to read or a, or a, you know a YouTube video to look at. But when you do a lot more work and understanding, it's how much trauma is recorded in the body, and so it's got to be you know more of a somatic release. And speaking about it as well is super super helpful. But for me, for me, when I didn't have the funds, it's identifying, I got on YouTube, I got, I started researching, I started Googling what my issues were, what I was feeling, right? And so I could start to identify what was going on with me, what, and, you know, my feelings of abandonment, my feelings of rejection, my feelings of not being wanted, of belonging. And then I started putting the pieces together. And then as my career's started shifting. I started making more money. Then I started hiring mentors. I started healing, jumping into healing groups. I started ju jumping into, you know, psychedelic therapy, all these different avenues that were really, really helpful. But the number one thing that helped me is finding a coach and finding a mentor that I, number one, I felt, and I knew that could see me, that could understand me. Right. It's different working with a therapist. And I know there's great therapists now, so I'm not speaking as an absolute, but it's different working with therapists who I know has never experienced any of the significant trauma I've been through rather than trying to teach me something they've read from a book, right? It's two completely different things. And so that's the number one thing that helped me is like, oh, this woman or this guy understands me. Even though they didn't go through exactly what I've been through, I know they've been through it. Right. And someone that could share and be and, and that could be vulnerable with me. Right. And that's never the number one thing I do as a coach is I share with my clients my vulnerability and the places that I've I've fallen and my darkness and my shortcomings. Right. And because that, that allowed me to feel seen and to take off this 200 pounds of armor I've been wearing for so long. I'm like, oh, this person gets me. This person understands me. And so that started shifting every, everything. The second piece is that's really important that a lot of people miss is being held accountable, right? When we've been traumatized a lot, when we've been through it, we create this great thick armor. So we don't necessarily share. And so we're not seen and we're not necessarily heard. And it protects us and we create it, you know, in our subconscious that it's like, I don't have to look at these things anymore because it's protected me for so long. But when you really step into healing, you need someone to help you point out your blind spots. You need someone to help you look at your shadow. You need someone, you know, like, hey, let's lift up that piece of armor over here. Let's look at this thing right here. This is not allowing you to be seen and heard and for you to 
fully enjoy these pieces of your life, right? To connect with those people that you love, right? And so it's really, really allowing yourself to become vulnerable and so, uh, by allowing someone to keep you accountable in those places. And so that's how I would start. And that's how I started. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. I, the accountability is huge because we are masters at lying to ourselves and mm -hmm. ignoring yeah. the pieces that we don't want to see and and not not looking under the, at the skeletons under the bed. And I think we're so great at selling ourselves on on a certain story. So I, I love those tips. Um, I do want to respect your time today. So I want to just ask you one last question. Your yeah. piece of advice as far as you you've struggled you've you battled your mental health you've overcome so much but i i know going through my own struggles that depression never goes away struggling with your mental health it never goes away i believe it's an active battle i believe it's an active fight to stay in a good headspace at least for me that's the space that i'm mm -hmm. um so i would love to know what your top three ways are that you stay in a good headspace now do you have any tips or practices that you do every day to just make sure that you you stay out of the darkness and and just be who you are today yeah, I've surrounded the first th first thing I would say I've surrounded myself with mentors, coaches, and they're more than friends. I would say family, right? That are there to support me, there to hear hear me, and there to love me, right? That was an intricate part to my healing journey and how I continue. The second piece is, and what research has shown over and over, is the importance of moving your body getting outside and moving your body, whatever that looks like, whether it's a walk, whether it's a jog, whether you're in your gym, whether you're in the pool, whether it's yoga, it does not matter, right? Moving your body. And the third piece is for me is being intentional with living in purpose. For so long, my identity was wrapped up in football. When football doesn't, didn't work out because of my car accident, it was wrapped up in rugby and, but rugby was my mistress to football. It was never my first love, but my identity was wrapped in, you know, sports, being an athlete. When those things left, I was lost. I was lost, you know, in, in a very dark place. Cause I'm like, who am I without these things? I would still introduce myself to people five, 10 years later after the last time I put on a helmet, like, yeah, I played football at the U. I needed people to know that, right? Because that's all I was. That's all, all I ever was. And so what I found though, and something I, I like to share is the more you heal, the more you truly heal from your trauma, what you realize is how you've been living your life in this tunnel vision, right? And the more you heal, that tunnel vision opens up more and more and more. And you see the world in so many different ways. You see so many different opportunities. Because with healing comes a lot more layers of self-love and self-confidence. And things you used to say no to that, I, that you tell yourself, you know, I could never do that or I would never do that. You start to be like, hmm, I think I can do that. And I'm going to try that. And so people always ask me, you know, how can I find my purpose? It's through healing. It's through healing and the super superpowers you truly, truly do inherit on the other side where you start to realize and align with your true calling. And I believe that more than ever. And, it, and don't get me wrong, your purpose doesn't necessarily need to be your career. It can just be something you enjoy doing, right? And so 
yeah, it, it would definitely be just really being intentional day to day, every day to live in purpose. That's powerful. I love that. Yeah. That's such great words of wisdom. Uh, so I would love for people to know how they can find you, how they can work with you. I know you have a phenomenal coaching program. So uh, I'd love for you to tell them how they can find you on Instagram, work with you in the warrior work. Yeah, it's really easy. You just click my link on Instagram or TikTok or my website. All of it is just Rob Surstens at Rob Surstens. It's S-I-R-S-T-I-N-S. And just click the link and you just onboard on there and reach out. Yeah, super easy. Cool. Well, I will definitely put your Instagram in the show notes of this podcast. And I super appreciate your time today. This was very valuable conversation and I love learning from you. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been an honor. Yeah.